Session one is entitled Dangerous Doctrines. In this session, we'll look at the metaphysical cultic origins of the movement and then the standard doctrines which the faith preachers teach that deviate from historical Christianity. And I think by the end of our time together tonight, you'll be able to see that the prosperity gospel is indeed a different gospel altogether. So, where did the Word of Faith movement begin? Well, it began with, with a man named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby, you could say, was the great-grandfather of the Word Faith movement. He's the one that first began to articulate some of the doctrines that we see today. Quimby was the father of the metaphysical cult known as New Thought. Now, when I say metaphysical, that's a big word, but really all metaphysical means is beyond the physical realm, beyond what we can see and touch here. And when I say cult, I mean any group or sect that calls itself Christian, yet compromises or denies some of the fundamental tenets of the faith. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a cult. Roman Catholicism is also a cult, a theological cult. Now, I'm not talking about a cult like Jim Jones' Drink the Kool-Aid kind of cult, but a theological cult because they compromise and deny some of the fundamental tenets of historical Christianity. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the session. Quimby was the father of the metaphysical cult known as New Thought. He was a student of occultism, hypnosis, and parapsychology. And I believe that much of the behavior that we'll look at in tomorrow night's session can be attributed to these disciplines. Quimby's theoretical formulations served as the basis for what is today known as Christian science. Mary Baker Eddy claimed that she was physically healed by Phineas Quimby. Now, when you read her story, she, her healing didn't last. She was a sick woman her entire life. But she claimed that she was healed by Quimby, and she was so impressed by his teachings that she took his teachings and developed them a little bit further, and from that formed what is today known as Christian science. Christian science is very poorly named, by the way, because it's neither Christian nor is it scientific. It's kind of like grape nuts. They're not grape and they're not nuts. Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. But there are a lot of Christian science overtones in today's prosperity gospel, one of which, if you have a friend or a family member who is involved in this movement, you might notice that when they get sick, they deny that they're sick. Uh, maybe they've got a cold and their eyes are watering, their nose is running, they're congested, you know, they talk funny the whole nine yards, but they'll deny it. They'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm not sick. Well, that's Christian science. And Christian science has its tentacles into the modern word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel. But Quimby is a great grandfather of this movement. The grandfather of the word faith movement is a man named Essek W. Kenyon. Kenyon is one of the uh, spiritual forebears of today's prosperity gospel, and all of your modern faith preachers would appeal to him as such. Kenyon had very clear ties to the metaphysical cults, particularly the New Age movement and New Thought. He attended college at the Emerson School of Oratory in Boston, where the metaphysical cults flourished, and he was heavily influenced by them. Kenyon did have a lot of things right. Okay, he, a lot of his doctrine was orthodox, but he did deviate on a number of places too. For example, Kenyon held that God created not ex nihilo, not out of nothing. Rather, God created by speaking faith-filled words. 
And we as believers can do the same thing. We can speak things into existence by the words that we speak. Kenyon held that humans took on the nature of Satan in the fall, and when this happened, they forfeited to Satan their supposed deity and made Satan the legal god of planet Earth. Satan is not the legal god of planet Earth, by the way. God is the legal god of planet Earth. The Earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. God is the legal god of planet Earth. Kenyon also held that Jesus died not only a physical death, but he also died a spiritual death. Kenyon did not believe that Jesus paid for our sins totally on the cross. He believed that after he died on the cross, then he went to hell, died spiritually, and atoned for sins in hell. And this is a staple doctrine, as we shall see, of the faith movement today. Kenyon held that health and wealth are obtainable by the believer's positive confession. So if you need money, you can speak it into existence. If you need healing, you speak it into existence. And uh, this is foreign to the Word of God, but it is right at home in the metaphysical cults, particularly the New Thought Movement. The New Thought Movement believed that you, whatever you think, your thoughts become physical reality. What you speak becomes physical reality. And New Thought held that illness, sickness, and disease is rooted in negative thinking, incorrect thinking, and then it manifests itself in your physical body. What has happened today in the modern prosperity gospel is that your modern faith preachers like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, these others, they have taken Kenyon's mistakes and made them worse. So compared to the uh, modern faith preachers, Essek W. Kenyon actually wasn't quite so bad. The father of the modern word faith movement is a man named Kenneth Hagen. And despite Kenneth Hagen's teaching that no believer should die until he's at least 120 years old. You see that Kenneth Hagin didn't quite make it. He died uh, just before his 86th birthday. But Kenneth Hagin, like all of the faith preachers, claim that much of what they teach, they receive directly from Jesus himself. And this is their way of insulating themselves against biblical criticism. And they'll say, well, if you can't find what I'm teaching you in the Bible, uh, don't worry about it, you see, because I have it from the highest authority. Jesus himself came and gave me these teachings. So if you can't find it in the Word, don't worry about it. It's okay. I got it from Jesus. Kenneth Hagin claimed that Jesus physically appeared to him on eight different occasions throughout the course of his life. And on one of these occasions, Hagin says that Jesus gave him the following words. According to Kenneth Hagin, Jesus physically appeared to him and gave him these words. It's interesting, however, that Jesus apparently bears a striking resemblance to Essek W. Kenyon. If you can see, it's practically word for word identical. Hagin did not get this from Jesus. Hagin plagiarized Essek W. Kenyon, among other authors, plagiarized them quite extensively, by the way. So the faith preachers are very fond of claiming divine origin for what they teach. But as you can see, the origins are not nearly so supernatural, not nearly as impressive. I want us now to look at the standard doctrines of the faith movement. We'll begin tonight by looking at the doctrine known as positive confession, that we can speak things into existence. Watch these clips. 
Look at me. Say, 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 all, all of you. Say, there's power in me, power in me. To, speak life and death. to speak life and death. You call what you have. You say what you want. And I'm here to tell you, I know that I know that I know that as these programs are airing, I am speaking something into existence. Amen. I'm speaking something into existence. If that sounds eerily like God's act of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that's because it is. Dear friends, only God can speak things into existence. That is not an ability that you and I have. But the faith preachers blur what should be a very crisp line of distinction between God the Creator and us His created. They demote God to make Him look more human than what He is, and then in turn they deify man to make us look a lot more like God than what we really are. And you may be thinking, oh, well, Justin, that, you know, maybe they didn't really mean that, uh, but oh yes, they, they do. Look at this tweet from Creflo Dollar. I've never tweeted or Twittered or whatever, but look at this from Creflo Dollar. He tweeted, he says, As spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the ability to speak things into existence just like God did. Lest there be any doubt as to what they are really teaching here. They teach that we can do the exact same things that God can do. We can speak things into existence create our own realities with the words that we speak, with the words of our faith, word of faith. We speak things into existence. So, is there any scripture to support this? Does the Bible indicate that this is an ability that we have? Well, on first consideration, Mike would seem so. T.D. Jake says, that word of God is how God procreates. It's how God regenerates. I didn't know God had to regenerate. And that's why once you get in the Word of God, you've got to be careful what you speak to because the power of life and death is in your tongue. Well, is this true? Does the Bible support this, that we have the power of life and death in our tongues? Well, upon first consideration, it might would seem that it does. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Wow. Well, doesn't it say right there we have the power of life and death in our tongues? Not exactly. As is common with the faith preachers, they take verses out of their proper context. Sometimes they don't even quote to you the entire verse. That's what they're doing here. Actually, they're doing both here. But they're not quoting to you the entire verse. Let's look at Proverbs 18:21 in its entirety. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. So you see, when you read the whole verse, it doesn't say exactly what the faith preachers claim that it does. Let me show you what Alan P. Ross says of this verse. He says, those who enjoy talking, indulging in it, must bear its fruit, whether good or bad. The lesson is to be warned, especially if you love to talk. This verse is actually a warning to us. In fact, when you read it in context, it talks about uh, the, the fruit of the lips and the fruit of the mouth. It's not saying that we can literally create things out of nothing. Uh, this is a warning. This is saying, if you're one of those people that is careless with your words, you'd better be ready to bear the consequences of it. There will be some. Do our words have impact on people? Absolutely. Can we hurt people with our words? Absolutely. James warns us about the dangers of the unbridled tongue. 
But is this literally teaching that we can speak things into existence? No, not at all. Dear friends, that is something that only God can do. The Hebrew word for create is bara, and only God baras. That is something that only God can do. Listen to this audio clip of Kenneth Copeland and Paul and Jan Crouch. Does God use faith? Surely. Now, now see, here's a sore spot. There are those not with who him. say. Not with, not, not with you. No, no, no. <laughs> not with God. In fact, I'm not sore at God at all, and I don't think he's sore at me. I don't know. I haven't done anything to him. No, but the, the critics say God is God. He doesn't have to have faith. He doesn't exercise faith. He doesn't use faith. He's God. He's the object of faith. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? Object? I don't know what that means. I don't either. Did you catch that? Uh, Kenneth Copeland said, now wait a minute. What's, what's that mean? God is the object of our faith. I don't know what that means. And then you hear Jan Crouch say, well, I don't either. Really? Friends, the fact that God is the object of our faith, I mean, that's first grade Sunday school stuff. You don't get more basic than that. That's Christianity 101. And the fact that these people who claim to be some of our leaders in Christianity don't understand the elementary truth that God is the object of our faith, that's amazing. Because you see, in their system, God is not the object of faith. Faith is the object of faith faith. You see, in the prosperity gospel, faith is not placed in God. Faith is a force that you direct at God to make him do what you want him to do. And so it's rather ironic when you think about it that these people who call themselves faith preachers don't even understand what faith is, don't even know what it is. This is one of the more unusual clips dealing with the doctrine of positive confession. Uh, watch this from Gloria Copeland. You know, you're, the, you're supposed to control the weather. I mean, Ken's the primary weatherman at our house, but when he's not there, I do it. You can see what's happening out there. It shows just like they have on at the weather, like on the news. I mean, he's got the computers, got the current weather on it and all that for flying. So, uh, Sometimes I'll hear something. I'll hear the thunder start. Maybe he'll still be asleep. And I'll say, Ken, you need to do something about this. <laughs> and knowing that. But you are the one that has authority over the weather. One day, Ken and Pat Boone, we were in Hawaii at their house. And we were, they were sitting outside. And there was a weather spout out over the ocean. And that's like a tornado, except it hits the water. And so they were sitting there, and they just watched it, rebuked it. It never did anything. One day, I was in the airplane in the back, and my little brother was in the back with me, and Ken was up front flying. And we were not in the weather, because we don't fly bad weather. But we, we could see the weather over here. And I looked out the window, and that tornado came down just like this, down toward the ground. And Ken said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You get back up there. So this is how I learned how to talk to tornadoes. I saw this. And that tornado went, whoop, 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 whoop. Even while I was watching him, my little brother was not a devout Christian at that time, and that was really good for him to see. 
So you're the weatherman. You get out there, or the weather woman, whichever it is, and you talk to that thing, and you tell it you're not coming here. I command you to dissipate, and you get back up there in Jesus' name. Glory to God. That, that, I won't charge you extra. That is so patently absurd that it really doesn't even need a comment, but, but I will offer a couple briefly. First thing, did you notice how she says that she and her husband, Kenneth, they can control the weather, but they don't fly in bad weather. <laughs> Why not? I mean, if you can control it, fly through a Category 5 hurricane if you want to. You see, honestly, honestly, just a little common sense goes a long way in clearing up a lot of this stuff. Aside from Scripture, just a little common sense. But dear friends, aside from that, if it is true, and that is a huge if, but if it is true that Gloria Copeland can control the weather by the words that she speaks, and by the way, it's not just Gloria Copeland. Many of the faith preachers claim to be able to do this. Jesse Duplantis, I mean, they, many of them do. But if it's true that they can control the weather by the words that they speak, then I would submit to you that these prosperity preachers are some of the most callous, hateful, narcissistic, arrogant, uncaring people alive on the face of the earth today. Might we ask where they were in uh, 2005 when a little storm named Hurricane Katrina rolled into town? Where, where were they? It's not like it caught them off guard. I mean, we were all watching this thing churn out in the Gulf of Mexico for four days before it came ashore. Where, where were they? Uh, a few years later in Australia when wildfires were raging out of control because of the drought there and killed hundreds of people, where were they? Why didn't they talk up some rain? Put those fires out. By the way, this past summer, the entire middle section of the United States of America, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, parts of Montana, went through exceptional drought. And, and much of the country, even as of tonight, is still in exceptional drought. Why don't they talk some rain up? I mean, the Copelands live here in Texas. Every year, thousands of people are killed in weather disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods that cause mudslides, wildfires. Where are they? Where was you a couple of months ago when Hurricane Sandy slammed into the Northeast. Thousands of people killed, not, not Hurricane Sandy, but hundreds were, and over a thousand killed in Hurricane Katrina, but multiple, multiple thousands of people around the world every year lose their life from weather disasters. Where are they? If they can control the weather by the words that they speak, then I would submit to you that these prosperity preachers should be charged with thousands of cases of negligent homicide every year. But you know what? I don't think they should really be charged with negligent homicide. You know why? Because they can't do what they say they can do. They're liars. These people are not Christian. Controlling the weather 
speaking to storms, making them go away? Does it remind you of someone else who one day was in a boat with his disciples and a storm came up and he spoke to the storm and calmed it? Sound familiar? You see what the faith preachers are doing. They blur that line between God the Creator and us His created. The power of our words. Read this with me from John Hagee. John Hagee says this, I believe that when a person says, I wish I were dead, he or she invites the spirit of death to invade his or her life. When an unhappy wife says, my marriage is a failure, she has pronounced the doom of this relationship. When a pregnant mother says, I don't want this baby, she is pronouncing the termination of her pregnancy or a curse upon the life of a child yet to be born. Speech is that powerful. Is it really? So according to John Hagee, if a pregnant mother, for whatever reason, says, I don't want this baby, she can put a curse on the life of that child or, or actually kill her child in utero. Where is the sovereignty of God in all of this? You see, the prosperity preachers have no concept of the sovereignty of God. God is not sovereign in the prosperity gospel. We are. And God is subservient to us in what we think, in what we speak. We essentially control Him. And His anthropomorphic hands are tied at our beck and call. You remember the account of the angel giving the announcement to Elizabeth about her upcoming baby, who was to be John the Baptist. Recall this in Luke's Gospel. And uh, the angel announced to Elizabeth that she would give birth. And when Zacharias heard about this, he didn't believe it, right? Because they were old and they were advancing years, and, and he didn't believe it. And you remember that in response to that unbelief, God closed his mouth, right? Made him a mute. For a very interesting take on why God closed his mouth, this from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says, why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future. And he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Unbelievable. So according to Joel Osteen, God was up in heaven looking down and he saw Zechariah making negative confessions and God just went into a panic. Oh my goodness, what am I ever going to do? I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last ditch effort to save his plan of redemption, God reached down and closed his mouth and made him a mute. Whew. Boy, that was a close one. This is the God, little g, this is the God of the prosperity gospel. The God of the prosperity gospel is a very weak, very effeminate God. It is not the God of the Bible. I want us now to look at the little God's doctrine. All of the faith preachers teach that if you are saved, if you are a Christian, you are in fact a little God. Listen to this exposition of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar, undoubtedly the most aptly named of the prosperity preachers. 
Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man, and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. That, we could unpack that in, at, on so many levels, but suffice it to say, dear friends, when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that means as human beings, you and I are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation. I don't care what PETA says, we are smarter and we are inherently more valuable than the animals. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability. Now, I love dogs. I do. I love dogs. I grew up with black labs, and, and I, I think dogs are great. <laughs> Amen. But the greatest, smartest dog in the world will never know God because he's not created in God's image. And cats for sure aren't, but. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we are. We have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God, but that does not mean we are God. The Bible is very clear there is only one God. There is only one God, and he will not share his glory with another. God is a jealous God, dear friends. He will not share his glory with another. 
even when we die and go to heaven, we're still not going to be little gods. There is only one God. And if I remember my Bible correctly, wasn't the desire to be just like God kind of what led to the whole fall thing to begin with? Isn't that interesting? That the very thing that the prosperity preachers teach as truth is the very thing that led to the fall in the first place. Is the very thing that led to, to sin and the whole depraved fallen world in the first place. And the faith preachers teach this truth and they want you to believe it. How ironic. And who else in the Bible wanted to be just like God? Satan did. Lucifer. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to receive the worship that was due only the true God. He wanted to be just like him. And he rose up in rebellion against God and it got him and a third of the angels kicked out of heaven for his tyranny and his insurrection. The little God's doctrine is quite literally a doctrine of demons. And the prosperity preachers preach it as truth. I want us now to look at what the faith preachers teach about the doctrine of the fall. There's a number of items here, but when we understand what they teach about the doctrine of the fall, it'll kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. Why they teach what they teach. Just going through some of these quickly. Number one, the faith preachers teach that Adam was an exact duplicate of God. He was not a little like God. He was not a lot like God. He was God. God literally reproduced himself in Adam. And according to the faith preachers, Adam was a carbon copy of Yahweh who could stand, quote, toe-to-toe -to -toe with God with no consciousness of inferiority whatsoever. Adam was another Yahweh. Well, we all know what happened, right? Adam sinned, which, of course, brings up an interesting question. If Adam was Yahweh and he sinned, was it Yahweh who sinned? You see, you carry these doctrines out to their logical conclusion. You see how dark they are. But when Adam sinned, he lost his deity, transferred it to Satan. When this happened, the real Yahweh God lost his legal right to planet Earth and was kicked out. And so even as we sit here tonight, according to the faith preachers, the real Yahweh God is up there somewhere, but he's got no access to planet Earth. He's been kicked out of his own creation. He is illegal on planet Earth and must get man's permission to intervene. Well, somebody has to fill that void, right? And Satan is all too eager to step up to the plate and Satan becomes the legal God of planet Earth. Now, some of the faith preachers will say, well, doesn't 2 Corinthians 4, 4 say that? Paul says, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. Well, not really because... That word that Paul says, uh, renders as world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is actually more accurately translated age. The, word, the Greek word is aeon, and it's more accurately rendered as age. What Paul is saying is Satan is the god of this age. Paul was not making a legal statement. He was making a theological point. Paul was saying that this world is so fallen, so sinful, so depraved, that it follows after Satan as if he were the god of this age, not the legal God of planet Earth. As we said, God is the legal God of planet Earth. 
But according to the prosperity preachers, guess what happens when a person gets saved? Guess what he gets back? Oh, he gets his godhood back. He regains his deity. He becomes God again, just like Adam supposedly was before he fell. And this, dear friends, is why the faith preachers hold so tenaciously to health and wealth. Because we're gods. And a god cannot be poor. And a god certainly cannot be sick. Talk about an entitlement mentality. They teach that we're gods. And therefore we are entitled to health and wealth. By the way, the desires for health and wealth... This is two, these are two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. But they are also fallen human desires. They are fallen human desires. Before Adam and Eve fell, they had no desire to be wealthy. They had everything they could need, everything they could ever want. They had no desire to be healed because they did not know sickness. They were genetically perfect. So when we appeal to health and wealth, we are appealing to fallen human desires, fallen flesh. Never, ever, ever present the gospel in such a way that it appeals to what fallen man already wants anyway. That is a different gospel. It is a different gospel. Watch this from Joseph Prince. You can always tell how powerful a truth is by the number of controversies the devil gathers around it. Yeah. Okay, when, when God restored the truth of healing, the devil put a signpost that said, heresy. Yeah. When, when God restored the truth of prosperity, the devil put a signpost that says, heresy. Yeah. And the church back off from the truth. Yeah. We shall not back away from the truth. No, no. And, and, and you can tell the, how powerful the truth is by the amount of controversies against the truth. Wow. Joseph Prince is a rising star in the Word of Faith movement, and what he's doing here is using a little bit of reverse psychology. And he says, when, when the church discovered the, the truth of prosperity, he says, uh, those people put up a sign that said heresy. You know, and when we discovered healing, heresy. He's using reverse psychology. He is saying that, what he's saying is that those people who actually care about the real gospel, who care about sound doctrine, who have a love for good theology, you know, who rightly divide the word of truth and warn people about the appeal to fallen human desires. He is saying those kind of people, those are heretics. They're, they're heresy hunters. They're legalists. They're Pharisees. But no, the people to whom he's referring that put up these signposts, these warnings about the appeal to health and wealth are actually the remnant of God's faithful people who care about sound doctrine and who want to teach people the truth. But he turns it into their, their, their heresy hunters, their legalist Pharisees. Related to this appeal to health and wealth is the softening of sin. This is something that you'll notice in the prosperity message is they really soft pedal sin. Now, Again, the prosperity gospel essentially says that we should come to Jesus because he'll make us wealthy and he will heal our bodies. They appeal to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. Most people want to be wealthy. 
and not many people enjoy being sick. There's a few that do. They just like the attention, I suppose. But not a lot of people enjoy being sick. And the prosperity preachers say, well, if you'll just come to Jesus, then you can have it, health and wealth. Oh, well, sign me up. You know, that, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to be wealthy. Um, I don't want to be sick anymore. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try Jesus. But is that the real gospel? Or is the real gospel something a little bit more like this? Come to Jesus because you are a sinner. And because of your sin, the wrath of God abides on you. And the only way to have that wrath removed is to repent of sins, turn from sins, and place your trust in Jesus. And then you will have heaven, to be sure. But on this earth, you're not promised money. You're not promised healing. What are we promised? Well, Jesus promises us tribulation. He promises us persecution. That's not quite as popular a message, you see. <laughs> Saying, come to Jesus because you can be rich. You won't have to be sick anymore. Friends, if you come to Jesus for those reasons or any other reason other than to flee from the wrath of God, you've come for the wrong reasons. Don't come to Jesus to have the, the, the God-shaped hole in your heart filled. Come to the cross to flee the wrath that is to come. Watch this from... TBN. This was recorded just about a month ago, or aired about a month ago. Uh, watch how they present the gospel here. They're actually going, Paul Crouch and his son Matt Crouch are going to uh, give an example with a, another evangelist on how to present the gospel. They were about to go out and do this big evangelism outreach, and watch how they present the gospel here. If, if, if you, uh, you know, ultimately don't know how to evangelize personally, get a part of a big team, yes. you know, be a part of this. Arthur's going to have the cross and he'll be like the Pied Piper. We're going to have him <laughs> walking around Hollywood and we're going to have that. But you guys are going to be there yes. because you're trained at doing all this. And this you know, what we so love somebody, to do. Some, a novice could, could get all hooked up. They could, they could join with us. We'll take them. We'll, we'll teach them hands okay. on. Yeah. Question. Yes. For those that can't be there in a hundred words or less, how do you walk up to a total stranger and get him in, yeah. involved in knowing Jesus? Well, you try to find a point of connection. What, try okay. to find a point of connection and try to find out what interests them and what are they, what's, their, what's their need. Okay, give me a, and, an example. Well, you, you talk, you say, hi, sir, how are you doing today? I'm terrible. I'm, I'm out of work. I'm hungry and uh, cold. And what do you got for me? I'm here to <laughs> let you know that there's someone here that cares about you. And, and he's, he's here, and he's, he's, he's in my heart, and he could be in your heart, too. Really? Yes. How can I know that? I could just say a simple prayer with you, and you'll feel the presence of God touch you. And I, I guarantee God will come into your heart if you allow him to come in, and he'll make a difference within your life if you just give him a chance. Beautiful. Excellent. So, in this little uh, skit here, Evangelist Sonny Arguenzoni, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct, but anyway, he 
he comes up to Paul Crouch in this, in this uh, faux witnessing encounter, and Paul Crouch says, well, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm out of work, cold, you know, what do you got for me? And then Sonny says, well, just pray this prayer. Just pray this prayer, and I guarantee you, you will feel the presence of God. Dear friends, praying some prayer is not going to make you saved. Okay? You will search the Bible in vain for the sinner's prayer. It ain't there. Now, am I saying God does not honor a prayer of repentance from a genuinely broken, genuinely contrite heart? No, I'm not saying that at all. But we have reduced the gospel in so many evangelical circles. We have reduced the gospel to saying the quote-unquote sinner's prayer, which is not even in the Bible, and we think as long as you say it, you really, really mean it, then that's your ticket into heaven. It says you'll feel the presence of God. Just pray, I guarantee it, if you just pray this prayer. That is not the gospel. We must warn people that their sin has incurred the righteous wrath of a holy God. And the only way to escape that wrath is to repent of sins and turn to Christ. And dear ones, as I said this morning, discernment does not begin and end with the prosperity preachers. I want to show you a clip from Rick Warren. Christmas time. Yeah, well, way, if, you got, if you got two doors, right, one says right. this one goes to life with eternity with God, right. and this one says eternity without God. Right. If I walk out the door that says eternity without God, do I blame God for that? No. That's right. my choice. Right. That's my choice. And so I choose to, re to, to go to hell. Mm -hmm. You have to do almost the impossible. What you have to do, you have to reject the grace of Jesus but, but Christ. Did you catch that? Rick Warren said, to go to hell, you've got to do almost the impossible. So Rick Warren says it is almost impossible to go to hell. That is a shockingly unbiblical statement. Dear friends, it is not almost impossible to go to hell. Everybody on earth is running to hell just as fast as their little fallen feet will carry them because that is what they want. That, they want the desires of their fallen human flesh and everybody is going to hell. And God in His mercy offers an escape. Scripture says that the, the gate is wide. The, the, the way is broad that leads to destruction. But the gate that leads to life is small, and the way that leads to life narrow, and few there be who find it. Rick Warren, in his presentation of the gospel, it's like he says it's almost impossible to go to hell. No. Jesus said something very different. When he was talking to the man whom we call the rich young ruler, the disciples were even more astonished at what Jesus said, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God. Rick Warren says it's almost impossible to go to hell. Jesus Christ says it is almost impossible to go to heaven. And apart from God, it is impossible. With man, it is impossible. Dear friends, let, it, let us not diminish sin 
Let us present the right gospel. Watch this video clip with Joel Osteen and Joseph Prince as they misdefine repentance. To do this, but you're getting the same kind of response, aren't you? People yes. need and, and want. You know, the word repentance, uh, like Joel said, is from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change your mind. And uh, every time, like Joel or, or me, preaching the word, without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time. From thinking this way negatively to thinking positively. As I said this morning, one of the dangers of the prosperity message and indeed every false doctrinal system is that there is some truth in what they say. There is some truth in what we just heard Joseph Prince say. He said that the word for repentance in the Greek is the word metanoia. He's right about that. That is the word for repentance in the Greek. And he's also right when it says, when it means that it means to change your mind. But Joseph Prince says that that change in mind means going from thinking negatively to thinking positively. So according to the definition that Joseph Prince gives us of repentance, you could repent by joining the Optimist Club. Friends, that is not what repentance is. Yes, repentance is a changing of mind, but it is a changing of mind that is wrought by God's Holy Spirit. And it's a change of mind that brings us to our knees where we realize we are wretched, vile sinners before a pure and holy and just God. And that change that is wrought in us by God's Holy Spirit, it is not just a change in mind. It is not just intellectual assent. It is a change in our entire being that results in fruit. There will be fruits of that repentance. Look what Paul says. Paul, speaking to Agrippa, he says, So, King Agrippa, I kept declaring that they, meaning all people, should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Does this mean we work our way into heaven? Absolutely not. But when God grants repentance, we cannot help but to have fruit. We cannot help but to have deeds that will be evident in our life. And that is a sign of genuine repentance. John the Baptist says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Dear friend, just intellectual assent that you are a sinner is not in and of itself repentance. Repentance results in a changed life that is evident to you and to everyone around you. It's not just joining the Optimist Club and thinking positively. That's not repentance. Another section in my seminar, Contorting the Covenant. You might notice, if you watch Christian television very much, you might notice that the prosperity preachers spend most of their time in the Old Testament. Most of their time in the Old Testament. There's a reason for this. Because what the prosperity preachers like to do is they like to take promises that God made to individuals or to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and make blanket application for us today. And what they really like to do is they, they really like the Abrahamic covenant. And they will say that God made a covenant with Abraham, and he obviously did, Genesis chapter 12. God made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham was a wealthy man. Well, here in the New Testament, as New Testament Christians, we have an even better covenant than Abraham did, and so we should have all of the blessings of Abraham and even more. 
Consider these clips. This from Gloria Copeland. If you want on God's master plan, you're going to have to give him some master time and some cooperation. It's a good plan. It's a health plan. It's a prosperity plan. It's all the good things. God told Israel, if you'll do these things, you'll be blessed. You'll have a surplus of prosperity. You'll, you'll be delivered from sickness and disease. You'll live long. It's God's will for us to live long and live strong. This from Mike Murdoch. How serious is God about being believed? In Deuteronomy 28, he says, if you'll believe me, I'll give you anything you ask for. I'll bless your houses. I'll bless your lands. So what they like to do is take promises that God made to individuals or to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and make blanket application for us today. That's bad hermeneutics. That's a bad way to interpret the Bible because we're not Israel. Okay? And we'll flesh more of that out in uh, later sessions. But they would appeal to the New Testament as their New Testament support, Galatians chapter 3, where Paul writes, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And, uh, wow, well, doesn't it say right there that we should have the blessing of Abraham? I mean, we're Gentiles, right? We're, we're non-Jews. And so we should have the blessings of Abraham. Abraham was wealthy, so we should be wealthy. Well, there's two big flaws with this interpretation. Two big ones. Number one, it ignores the second half of the verse. The verse continues to say, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what is in view here? Material blessings or spiritual blessings? Spiritual blessings clearly is what Paul had in view here, not material blessings. And also, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. In other words, it was not contingent upon faith. When God cut the covenant with Abraham, it is something that God did sovereignly. God did it. Abraham gathered these animals and he divided them in half and put the halves opposing one another. And then you recall in Genesis that Abraham went into a sleep and the covenant, that God cut the covenant in the form of this torch and this oven that went through the, the halves of the animal pieces. Dear friends, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. He was sawing logs. He didn't even know what was going on. God did it. God did it. And it was not contingent upon Abraham's participation. It is something that God did. And yet, what do we see today in the prosperity gospel? Prosperity preachers say, you can have healing, you can have money, as long as you have enough what? As long as you have enough faith. So it's not even the same paradigm. It doesn't even fit the paradigm of the Abrahamic covenant. And by the way, when you read Genesis carefully, before God cut the covenant with Abraham, go back to Genesis chapter 11, when Abraham came out of the land and uh, he had his family with him, he says he had possessions, and he said his people, he took his people with him, uh, that is referring to slaves. Only wealthy people had slaves. Abraham was apparently a wealthy man before God ever cut the covenant with him. 
So his, his wealth really was not a direct result of the covenant in the first place. Be a good Berean. Search the scriptures. See if these things are so. Watch this video clip of Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe. We get the mind of God about his will. We pray it. When we pray it, we give him legal right to perform it. Yes. Let me define prayer for you in this show. Prayer is man giving God permission or license to interfere in earth's affairs. In other words, prayer is earthly license for heavenly interference. That's incredible. <laughs> that is incredible. God could do nothing on earth. Nothing has God ever done on earth without a human giving him access. So he's always looking for that somebody. Always looking for a human to give him power, permission. In other words, God has the power, but you get the permission. God got the authority and the power, but you got the license. So even though God could do anything, he can only do what you permit him to do. God can only do what we permit him to do. Dear friends, I would submit to you tonight that God can do whatever He jolly well wants to do. And isn't terribly concerned about whether or not He has our permission to do it. Don't take my word for it. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Thank you very much. God can do whatever He wants to do. Oh, well, Justin, that, that just says that God can do whatever he wants to do in heaven, not, not on earth. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Oops. Friends, God can do whatever he wants to do and does not need our permission to do it. God is God and we are not. Watch this video clip from Jesse Duplantis. Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord literally say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. God asks Jesse Duplantis for his opinion? Really? That, is that not shocking? Pray tell, Jesse, continue. Finish your thought. I said, well, Lord, since you asked, maybe I'm doing it. He said, no, we can talk frankly. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. He said, why you don't think I ought to do that? I said, well, you know, and I know you know people more than I do, but you know, Lord, if you just let me, let me do a little bit more work on this individual, I think we can get them to you. He says, okay, go ahead. Do what you have to do. And I tell you what, the Bible says he who wins souls is wise. Yes, and he who thinks he can counsel God is a fool. God speaking, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? The fact that God has not struck these people dead is a testimony 
to how merciful our God is. These people are not Christians. Dear friends, a Christian, a born-again Christian, someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God cannot utter such blasphemies. Can't happen. Such a statement cannot be said from someone who knows God. Jesse Duplantis does not know the God of the Bible. Oh, they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the right Jesus. They believe in Jesus, they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Mormons believe in Jesus too. Muslims believe in Jesus too. They just don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Neither do the prosperity preachers. You recall that I talked about how the Word of Faith movement is essential cultic doctrine that has been cloaked in some Christian terminology. They teach that whatever we speak, we will create. Whatever our thoughts are, we will attract these things to us. If that sounds familiar, there's a reason for that because this is nothing new. This is something called the secret, otherwise known as the law of attraction. Oprah Winfrey has been very fond of the secret, has been heavily promoting it over the last number of years. Uh, Oprah Winfrey may be a, a nice lady, but she is not a Christian. Ladies, don't watch Oprah. She's not a Christian. She's cultic. The prosperity gospel is essentially a Christianized version of the secret. They made a movie off of The Secret. Now, I want to show you a trailer clip from this movie. Watch this trailer clip of the movie and see if you don't notice some interesting parallels between The Secret and the prosperity gospel.
it's the same thing. The prosperity gospel is simply a Christianized version of the law of attraction, the secret. It is cultic doctrine that has been wrapped in some Christian terminology. And in the last bit of that clip, you saw this young man pick up the, the, the lamp and he rubbed the lamp and this genie comes out. And the God, the little G, the God of the prosperity gospel is essentially that, a genie. And as long as we rub him with our faith, we can get anything that we want. Money, health, wealth, prosperity, whatever we want. As long as we use our faith and say the right words. Watch this video clip from Jesse Duplantis. I'm, I'm going to say something going to knock your lights off. God has the power to take life, but he can't. He's got the power to do it, but he won't. He's bound. He can't. He says death and life is in the power of whose tongue? Yours. You ready for this? You want something to knock your lights off? You choose when you live. You choose when you die. Jesse Duplantis says that God has the power to take life, but he can't. He's bound. He won't. He can't. You know, I, I think that might come as a bit of a surprise to a, a number of people in the Bible. Let's see. Uh, King Herod. You remember King Herod when... God killed him and he was eaten by worms. King Herod would probably disagree with Jesse Duplantis. Um, who else? Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? When they were carrying the ark and the ark started to wobble and Uzzah just reached up to steady the ark and God struck him dead. Poor Uzzah. He was just trying to steady the ark. You think God doesn't take obedience seriously? God struck him dead. I think Uzzah would probably differ with Duplantis and who else in the Bible? Oh, oh yes. Everybody alive on the face of the earth except for eight people in that little flood thing. I think they would probably differ with Jesse Duplantis. God chooses when we live and he chooses when we die, not us. This from Kenneth Copeland. I was shocked when I found out who the biggest failure in the Bible actually is. Okay. You know, everybody asks, you say, who's the biggest failure? They say, Judas. Somebody else will say, no, nah, I believe it's Adam. Well, how about the devil? He's the most consistent failure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he's not the biggest in terms of material failure and so forth. The biggest one in the whole Bible is God. Mm. Oh, what, what, what? Don't you turn that set off. <laughs> you listen to it. You, I told you now, you sit still a minute. You know me well enough. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell something I can't prove with the Bible. Is that not shocking? Kenneth Copeland says that God is the biggest failure in the Bible. Unbelievable. And Kenneth Copeland goes on to explain that God is a failure because he lost uh, his most anointed angel. And when Adam and Eve fell, he says he lost the earth. So God was a failure. Of course, that is blasphemy. 
That is blasphemy. When Adam and Eve sinned, that is not something that caught God off guard. The Bible says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. It's blasphemy to teach that God is any kind of a failure. These people are not Christians. They are not Christians. They do not know the God of the Bible. I want us to look now at what the faith preachers teach about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we can establish that they preach a different Jesus, we can establish that they do indeed preach a different gospel. Many of the faith preachers teach what is essentially an Arianistic view of Christ. Arianism was an ancient heresy that kind of infected the early church. And basically what Arianism held, uh, it said that Jesus did not come as God. He just came as a man. A man like any one of us. A man who had a very close walk with God but was not actually God in human flesh. And some forms of Arianism say that Jesus later became God. Well, the prosperity preachers have this view of Jesus. Read this from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar says, and somebody said, well, Jesus came as God. Well, how many of you know the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers? And yet in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus came as a man. And at age 30, God is now getting ready to demonstrate to us and give us an example of what a man with the anointing can do. Y'all, please listen to me. Please listen to me. This ain't no, no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. Dear friends, if a preacher actually has to tell you that he's not a false prophet, chances are. Chances are. So Creflo Dollar says that Jesus came as a man, and he uses as support the account of Mark's gospel of Jesus being asleep in the back of the boat, and because God never sleeps nor slumbers, and Jesus was asleep, then Jesus could not have been God. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. When Jesus came incarnate on this earth, Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. 100% God, 100% man. And as the God-man, Jesus experienced many of the same things that you and I experienced. He got hungry, he got thirsty, and guess what? He got sleepy. It does not mean he ceased to be God. Not at all. This is ridiculous. But this is Arianism. This is Arianism. And the early church struggled with this heresy, but it came up for a vote in the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. And the early church voted it down resoundingly. They did away with Arianism centuries ago. And yet the faith preachers hold on to it. This from Kenneth Copeland. And Jesus volunteered to go to hell. I'm going to tell you something. Ain't nobody ever got out of there. The only thing he had to go by was the promise of God that I'm reading you right now. He didn't have some special revelation from heaven between he and God the Father. No, the Bible said he emptied himself when he came and he saw himself in the word and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He found himself in the word. So according to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus came as a man and there was no special relationship between Jesus and God the Father. Jesus was just another man. 
Just another man who walked into church one day and opened up the scrolls and started reading it and said, well, I'll be John Brown. Look, who, look here, look who I am. He had no idea who he was. He just found himself in the Word. That is a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. Kenneth Copeland says that Jesus emptied himself. Well, what does this mean? Does the Bible teach this? Actually, yes. Let's look at this. What does this mean, Jesus emptied himself? Philippians chapter 2, but, referring to Jesus, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So, now the faith preachers teach that Jesus emptied himself, divested himself of his deity, and operated simply as a man, a man under the leadership of God, but a man nonetheless, pure and simple, just a man. Is that what this teaches? Not at all. Dear friends, when Scripture says that Jesus emptied himself, it does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity, nor does it mean that he emptied himself of any of his attributes. A lot of people think, well, Jesus just emptied himself of his divine attributes. No, he did not. No, he did not. Jesus had, he was fully God, fully man, while he was incarnate, he had full deity, and he had all of the attributes of God while he was incarnate on earth. So of what did he empty himself? He emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise his attributes at certain occasions. He didn't lose his attributes, he just emptied himself of his divine right, his divine privilege, his divine prerogative to exercise those attributes. For example, God is omniscient. He knows all things, right? Did Jesus know all things while he was on earth? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Let's look at this. John chapter 16. The disciples say to Jesus, now we know that you know all things. The disciples are talking to Jesus, and they say, now we know that you know all things. Now, what a great opportunity, right? If Jesus did not know all things, what a great opportunity for Jesus to say, uh, hold on, guys. I, I, you think I know all things, but I really don't. I, I used to before I became incarnate when I was in heaven, but I don't know all things now. What a great opportunity for Jesus to say that, right? Is that what Jesus said? Uh-uh. Look at what he said. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Jesus affirmed what they said. He accepted it. He affirmed it. Basically, they're saying, you're right, I do. Do you now believe? Jesus did not lose his deity. He did not empty himself of his deity, nor did he empty himself of the attributes of his deity. He simply emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise those attributes on certain occasions. The following is a prophecy given to Kenneth Copeland. According to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus physically appeared to him and gave him these words. According to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus said this to him, Don't be disturbed when people accuse you of thinking you are God. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed that I walked with him and he was in me. Hallelujah. That's what you're doing. Wow. So according to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus told him directly, I did not claim to be God. I just claimed that I walked with him. He was in me. Hallelujah. That's what you're doing. You see what the faith preachers are doing? 
they are wanting to make Christians just as much in incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. And that is a direct quote, by the way. They teach that Christians are, quote, just as much in incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. This is a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus forgave sin, something that only God can do. Jesus most certainly did claim to be God. And any Jesus that Kenneth Copeland is preaching who did not claim to be God is not the Jesus of the Bible. If they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different gospel. Never to be outdone with himself. This also from Kenneth Copeland. And I say this with all respect so it don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and I say, I am too. Unbelievable. Heresy. These people are not Christians. Justin, are you making a statement about their salvation? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and teach such blasphemies over and over and over. It cannot happen. Watch this video clip of Larry Huck and Paula White. We really begin to understand that, that, that when Jesus Christ paid the price, the first thing that happened after he said it is finished is the veil was rent from top to bottom, signifying that no man could do that. But the price that was paid was there's now no separation. So that we have direct access in the Holy of Holies. We understand, according to Hebrews, that Jesus is our high priest. Absolutely. And he's the first of many brethren, which means I now come into a priestly anointing. So I now come Say that again because they don't get it. I now come into a priestly anointing. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. He is not. I'm a Son of He's God. He's the first fruit. You, you're the, He's the first fruit. He's the firstborn of many. Jesus is not the only begotten on. Son of God. Can you believe that? Flat out denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? Have they read John 3.16? I mean, honestly, friends, friends, we're not talking about minor theological differences here. We're not talking about the date of the Exodus or who wrote the book of Hebrews. These issues go to the heart of Christianity. What one believes about Jesus will determine where one spends eternity. And again, please hear me, it is not enough to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus too, but they don't believe in the right Jesus. You must trust in the Jesus of the Bible. Watch this video clip. This is from Victoria Osteen. This is Joel Osteen's wife, and she's leading a communion service at Lakewood Church, which is problematic in and of itself. But listen to what she says here. She actually starts off, eh, so-so, but it goes, goes downhill real quickly. This from Victoria Osteen. You see, Jesus walked this earth in a human body. He was man. He was God made flesh. The Bible says he was tempted and tried in every way, just like we are, but he overcame. See, Jesus was man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God on the inside of him. And that's encouraging today.
No, that's heretical today. That's heresy. Jesus was just a man until God touched him, put his spirit on the inside of him. That's heresy. It's heresy. What are the faith preachers getting at? Again, further evidence. They want us to be just like Jesus, just like God. This from Kenneth Copeland. God is a family man. We've called him father. We've seen he is not trying to keep people out of his family, but to bring them in. And we've even begun to realize that like any father, he desires for his children to be healed and healthy and to have enough not just to survive, but to prosper and bless others. God's purpose and plan, the deepest desire of his heart is coming to pass. God is going to have a family of equals. Heresy. Heresy. But this is what they're getting at. They are elevating man to the status of godhood. Mormons do that too, by the way. Some interesting overlap between Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, word of faith. Interesting overlap. I want us now to look at the spiritual death of Jesus doctrine. All of the faith preachers teach this. This is a standard staple doctrine of the word faith movement. They teach that Jesus' physical death on the cross was not enough to pay for sins. That when Jesus died physically, the work of the atonement had just begun. When he died on the cross, then he went to hell, suffered, was tormented by the demons in hell, died spiritually, ceased to be God, and had to be reborn. Jesus had to get saved. This from Kenneth Copeland. Jesus had to go through that same spiritual death in order to pay the price. Now, it wasn't the physical death on the cross that paid the price for sin, because if it had been, any prophet of God that had died for the last couple of thousand years before that could have paid that price. It wasn't physical death. Anybody could do that. Wasn't the physical death of Jesus that paid for our sins? No, anybody could have done that. No, Mr. Copeland, nobody else could have done that because no one else is perfect. This also from Copeland. He paid the price. He suffered so you and I don't have to go there. Now, if he hadn't suffered it in the spirit as well as the flesh, the flesh cannot make sacrifice for spiritual things. If the flesh could make sacrifice for spiritual things, then the, the, the flesh of animals would have gone a lot closer and a lot further than they did. The Spirit then, Jesus' very own holy, pure, sinless Spirit paid the sin price for your spirit. This from Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson, pastor of uh, Bethel Church, Redding, California. Bill Johnson is a leader in the New Apostolic Reformation movement. This from Johnson. We have uh, a little dramatic thing uh, presented to you. Dr I don't know, did you know that Jesus was born again? I asked the first, first service. And he said, no. But I will show you. It's in the Bible. Bill Johnson says that Jesus was born again, that Jesus got saved. Again, this, dear friends... This is what they're doing. They're trying to diminish the deity of Christ. They are trying to elevate man. And they teach that Jesus died spiritually, 
ceased to be God and had to be reborn. He had to get saved. Why is this such a dangerous doctrine? Dear friends, if Jesus died spiritually, okay, spiritual death, not spiritual suffering, spiritual death. If Jesus died spiritually, then he ceased to be God. Because God is life. He is the essence of life. He gives life. So if Jesus died spiritually, then he ceased to be God. And if Jesus ceased to be God, even for an instant, then he never was God to begin with. Because God cannot cease being God. Are there things that God cannot do? Yes, absolutely there are. God cannot lie. God cannot cease being God. God never changes. Hebrews 13:8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if there was ever a time when Jesus was not God, then he never was God to begin with. And some people will say, well, Okay, but what about what Jesus said on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And all of the prosperity preachers, and indeed even a lot of Baptists, I heard this growing up as a kid, as a Baptist, I heard that when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That God the Father completely turned his back and abandoned the Son, and the, and the Trinity was split. That God the Father and God the Son were split, completely and totally separated. Be careful. Let's be careful. Dear friends, when it comes to the atonement of Jesus Christ, it is important that we not say too little. It is also important that we not say too much. But let's look at this. Jesus did cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We need to note that Jesus is quoting Scripture, Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And Using proper hermeneutics, proper Bible interpretation methods, we don't take a verse of Scripture out of its proper context, right? We leave it in its context. So let's look at a little bit further, a little bit fuller view of the context of Psalm chapter 22. Go down a few verses, same chapter, verse 19, verse 24. The psalmist David continues, But be not thou far from me, O Lord, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, Neither has he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. The psalmist, David, had gotten to this point where he felt like he had been abandoned by God. That is what he felt like. But dear friends, we cannot base our theology on our feelings, right? Because feelings change. So even though he felt like he had been abandoned by God, in reality, you see, he had not. He says it right here. Be not far from me, O Lord. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Dear friends, I think we have to bend the knee and we have to admit that there is a mystery to exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross that we will never fully understand this side of heaven. Was the agony of the cross the, the thorns? Yes. Was it the, the whipping? Yes. Was it the nails? Yes. And the thirst? Yes. And the, and the asphyxiation? All of that horrific, horrific suffering. That was the agony of, of the cross, but that was not the totality of it. 
When Jesus was on the cross, dear friends, the wrath of God was poured out in full strength on Jesus the Son. God's righteous wrath was poured out on Jesus and he drank it in fully. And I think when God's wrath was being poured out in his humanity, okay, in his humanity, in his human nature, Jesus did feel some level of estrangement, even some level of, of abandonment or separation. He felt like that, that he was being separated from his father. But even though he felt that way in his deity, Jesus was never separated from the father, never. What else did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was praying to his Father on the cross. So those lines of communication, if you will, within the triune Godhead were still very much intact. We can't fully understand that, but Jesus was praying to his Father. The Trinity, dear friends, has never, ever been split. Not from eternity past, not, not at the cross, not into eternity future, never. The Father and the Son have always had fellowship. Always have, always will. A spirit. The Bible is quite clear that it was the physical death of Jesus that atoned for sin. Many verses point to this. Paul writes in Colossians, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Peter writes, for Christ also died for sins, how many times? Once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit of God. He was put to death in the flesh. More Bible proof. Paul writes, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are not saved so that we can have our best life now. We are saved from the wrath of God. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Dear friends, it was the physical death of Jesus that paid for our sins. Not a spiritual death. This from Duplantis. Duplantis says, you see, I don't let Jesus carry His cross alone. I believe that when we deny ourselves by putting God and others first, we are actually helping to carry the cross. Unbelievable. Who does this man think he is? Thinking that he can help Jesus carry his cross? Well, he's about 2,000 years too late. Friends, that, that, that ship has sailed. And that is the whole point of the cross, that Jesus bore it alone because he was the only one qualified to bear it. Something that you'll notice about every cult, every cult disparages the cross of Jesus Christ, that it was not enough to pay for sins. Mormons disparage it. Jehovah's Witnesses disparage it. Roman Catholics disparage the cross of Jesus Christ. How do they do that? I'm not sure if you're aware, but according to Roman Catholic doctrine, official Roman Catholic doctrine, when Catholics have mass, do you know that they call it the sacrifice of the Mass? You know why they call it the sacrifice of the Mass? What are they sacrificing? 
they believe they're sacrificing Jesus. According to official Roman Catholic doctrine, when they have the Mass and the priest takes that little wafer, little cracker, what they call the host, they believe that the priest is given power. When he lifts that wafer up, he is given power, get this, not to ask Jesus to come down out of heaven and get into the little biscuit, what they call the, you know, the host, their doctrine of transubstantiation, that the cracker actually turns into the flesh of Jesus. Not to ask him to come down, to pull him down. Catholics believe they are pulling Jesus out of heaven. And they put him into this little cracker. And they sacrifice him. To put it bluntly, dear friends, they believe they are killing him. They believe they are killing Jesus. And they do it over and over and over and over and over and over, multiplied thousands of times every week in thousands and thousands of Catholic churches all around the world. They believe they are killing Jesus. It's kind of ironic that Catholics are so strong when it comes to abortion, and they're so strongly pro-life when it comes to abortion. I mean, I'm glad they are. Any, even aside from being a Christian, any thinking person should be pro-life. But I do find it ironic that as strong as they are in support of the unborn, they don't want to kill the unborn, but they've got no problem whatsoever killing Jesus, the only one who truly does not deserve death in any capacity. They kill him every time they have mass. And Catholics do not believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They don't. They say, yes, you have to have faith in Christ, but you've also got to do these works. You've got to go to communion. You've got to, you've got to go to Mass. You've got to do your penance. You've got to say your Hail Marys. You've got to do all of these things. You've got to go to confession. You've got to do all of these works. And you contribute to your salvation. And then when you die, then you go, get to go to purgatory and have all the other sins that Jesus somehow didn't pay for and have those burned up. That is an offense to the cross. Friends, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you add anything to the gospel, you've got a different gospel. Roman Catholicism is a theological cult. Do I hate Catholics? Absolutely not. I love Catholics. I hate Catholicism like I hate every false religious system. And if we really love Catholics, we need to tell them the truth. Every cult disparages the cross of Jesus Christ. I close with this passage of Scripture. Peter writes, False prophets arose among the people, even as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Peter says that false prophets will be among the people, will be false teachers among you. And how will they introduce their destructive heresies with flags waving, guns ablazing? No, secretly. They will have some truth, but mixed in with that truth, error, denying the Lord who bought them. Any man who would teach that Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God, denying the Jesus of the Bible, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. When their destruction comes, and it will, it will be swift. Many will follow their sensuality. This movement is the face of Christianity in so much of the world today. By reason of whom the way of truth will be maligned. What way of truth? The way of truth. The gospel will be maligned. 
and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The King James says it this way, they will make merchandise out of you. All of the prosperity preachers are opulently wealthy and they are making merchandise out of sick and hurting and desperate and undiscerning people. Every phrase fits to a T what we see today in the modern health and wealth prosperity gospel. Every phrase. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, how sobering it is to read in your word and, and know that every book, every book in the New Testament warns us about false teachers, about wolves in sheep's clothing who will come in not sparing the flock. Father, may we be aware of them and their ways. May we be sanctified in the truth of your word and know your truth so when error does come, we can spot it and we can warn others about it. Speak the truth to them. Speak that truth in love. All for the glory of God. It's in Christ's name. Amen.